My name is Alec Mercer. I was brought in because I know people and why they do inexplicable things. You're the science guy. That's Bill Nye. I'm actually the behavioral science guy. Good morning, Professor. Hello, hello. Welcome to Applied Psychology 101. Are you familiar with predictable irrationality? Paradoxical persuasion. Attentional blindness. Bereavement sex. Nothing irrational about that. I did it. I must have snapped. How did it feel when you shot her? I don't remember. What kind of gun? I don't know. He confessed. He did. But I think he was mistaken. Why are you so sure he's innocent? When we remember things, we remember images, specific details. But he's a former Marine who couldn't remember what kind of gun he fired. Whoever did it is still out there. Pride, revenge, the perfect crime. You're the world's leading expert in human behavior. Why are you looking for outliers? The answer was right in front of us. We just didn't see it. Who do you think you are? James Bond. I think I threw my back out. People are irrational, but predictably so. One error in judgment leads to another. So this is just a theory? Well, gravity was just a theory at one point. Friends and enemies, it's episode 288 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. A while back ago, we we covered a a little story that was on NPR, and it it caught my attention because of the subject of it, but I don't think it had like really blown up yet, or it was like starting to blow up. But now, now there's a uh, so there's the story, right? We were talking about like this very famous behavioral economics study on dishonesty, right? And, and it's, it turns out that there are these you know, accusations that the authors of the study, two extremely famous behavioral economists, um, Dan Aureli and Francesca Gino, um, there are accusations that the study was fraudulent, right? And it was a study about dishonesty and lying. And it was nominally in partnership with an insurance company, um, although the insurance company then put out a statement saying that uh, this ain't our data. In fact, we didn't even have a, uh, an agreement with these, uh, with these academics, with these researchers, that they could publish or talk about any of, this, uh, of the data that we shared with them. And then the data that they used for the study uh, that has nothing to do with the data that we share. So, so the, the insurance company was uh, distancing themselves and also throwing some accusations of fraud in there. And so this was all piling up. And I, I just found, you know, we talked about it for a little while because uh, I, one, uh, I hate behavioral economics. 
and and we're going to mm-hmm. do it more um, today. That uh, that 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 is a very borne out and justified um, disdain mm-hmm. for the most dismal of the dismal sciences. Uh, I mean, calling it a science does a a real disservice to science. Um, but and two, there was that you know the insurance angle, right? So of course it piqued my interest here, uh, and and the the collaboration between behavioral economics and insurance runs deep. Um, there, there are entire strains of insurance that I've talked about before that are becoming dominant, that are growing in, uh, in influence and size uh, called behavioral insurance, right? And in fact, when we uh, had the episode on wellness capitalism and corporate wellness programs with Tamara and Eve, you know, that falls under behavioral insurance. This idea that you can use the tools and techniques of behavioral economics to um, actively change people's behavior through incentives and nudges and other forms of of trickery, right? To take advantage of people's cognitive biases and inherent irrationality and and all of that. But you know, it, it, insurance companies love this shit because it provides them with a hyper-individualistic way of understanding risk as something that comes out of personal choices, not structural constraints or anything like that. Um, But also it gives them a a tool for deriving value from that risk through pricing, uh, through these behavioral interventions, uh, and so on. So there's a real kind of... um, capitalist paternalistic element to a a lot of this so that's the background here right we talked about it we were like this is interesting um oh the irony uh yet another uh mark against behavioral economics and behavioral insurance and then and then (laughs) the new yorker in the in, in the latest issue just published i mean we just talked about their the new yorker is hitting some some good some good ones right now right in the in the premium episode, we just talked about their massive profile of not only Sam Bankman-Fried, but the real freak beak of his parents uh, coming to his defense and, 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 and all of that. And then, you know, right, like soon after we recorded that episode, uh, this new fucking massive story in The New Yorker drops um, in the next issue called They Studied Dishonesty. Was their work a lie? And it goes so in depth into not only Dan Aurelli and Francesca Gino and their career and their long history, like this, this insurance dishonesty paper that's getting called up for fraud is not an anomaly, but is rather uh, one of a, a very long, decades long pattern of behavior um, by these academics, uh, by these charlatans, uh, I would say. Um, and, and it is, but it is not only about them, it is also. Um, by extension, a a really damning profile of the entire field of behavioral economics as uh, just a, a bunch of grifters and charlatans running amok and making huge bucks while doing it uh, and producing uh, just drivel, just the most fraudulent drivel. Um, so, you know, in reading this massive profile or this massive article, 
uh, fucking like 11,000 words. It is so big. Uh, you know, we were talking about it. And we were like, we, we need to just do an episode on this because it is so much juicier and so much more insane um, than I knew, uh, than, than we realized, than, you know, uh, the, the little story we talked about you know, uh, what, weeks or months ago at this point from NPR, um, there, there's just, it, we really, we didn't even glimpse the, the tip of the iceberg, right? Like, like we were seeing the, uh, the, the molecules, uh, on the surface, <laughs> it goes so much deeper, um, than we realized. And, and it takes a lot for me to, uh, I feel like, like I have a, I have a real cynicism, um, and you know a real hatred, as I've already said, for behavioral economics. And I feel like it, it takes a lot for me to walk away feeling like, uh, like, like I'm fanning myself because I'm just so shocked and appalled at what I saw. You know, like I, I it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's, you know, shocked my sensibilities. But <laughs> I feel like I feel like this this essay or this article in the New Yorker really reaches that where I'm like. God damn, they did what? And then they did what? Huh? And, you know, the, the it, like, like it, it shows a real moral depravity, I think, at the heart of of, of this uh, entire discipline. And it's like big leading figures. So there, there's a lot for us to get into here. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's really hard to overstate truly how much fraud is going on. <laughs> and and also the extent to which the people who were per- per- perpetuating it have you know knowingly perpetuated it tried to protect each other then quickly once they got caught started blaming one another then trying to sue the people that figured out <laughs> or you know data collado which as we'll talk about is one of the um is the is uh the blog essentially where you know the, all of this was started to unfurl right i've i just i just i just don't think i've seen such a giant fuck up i mean unforced error is not right right because uh they were doing fraud they were you know they were doing fraud and at each step of the way they said something stupid that made it clear they were doing fraud or raised questions that then got people to look closer and then they you know broke uh faith with each other and that just led it to you know going down to shit as well as their attempts to say, uh, you know, hey, you guys are saying our data is fake because you're sexist. You know, you're discriminating against us. Is I mean, you know, we'll talk all about this, I think. But I think it's also it's a very satisfying. I know for me as well as Jathan, because behavioral economics is, um, you know, um, is astrology for capitalists. I think I think that's the best way to kind of describe it. You know, like you're you're auguring animal spirits to explain why people do the things that they do um or extrapolating really far from it from like maybe a few interesting insights um that might have been noticed by behavioral economics right you know when i was um when i was younger when i was in uh when i was doing my time in in um 
in in the STEM prison, um, they one of the things um, I was interested in at first was behavioral economics, right? In almost in the way that uh, Paul Krugman was interested in economics because psychohistory wasn't real, you know, that was more or less the interest that drew me into behavioral economics and into pursuing econometrics. But uh, behavioral economics, more so than other econo economist uh you know ideologies and threads is guilty i think of almost entirely erasing most of like what the content of a person is to abstract for the models um to anticipate behavior in mass right um which is also similar to the premise of uh, psychohistory uh and you know as as we'll go through you know, especially here when they start applying social psychology to it, um, they it, it's it's a science that's also used to try to push policy prescriptions, recommendations, uh, wizened judgment about how society should be organized and how resources should be allocated because that's the ultimate you know uh, agenda of economics, right? Is to try to figure out how you know what's what. What sci what scientifically can we say about how resources are distributed in the most optimal way to ensure that you know we get the best possible outcome? And what will that look like? And what are the things that we should avoid and not avoid? And what are the consequences of various allocations and distributions? And so to have a junk science become so popular, to become so mainstreamed, and to become so rife with fraud is a big concern because this sits at the center of a lot of or a good deal of policy prescriptions. Um, and attempts to build out the economy of the world over the past few decades. And it's also like a lauded field, right? This is a field that has a bunch of Nobel Prizes. This is a field that has a, a bunch of like, you know, really hoity-toity uh, establishment uh, figures and, and, and recognitions. And, and, and the field in of itself, as we'll, you know, go into in this piece, was very invested in like trying to ensure that one – uh, the fraud didn't break out into, you know, wider circles or wasn't known in wider circles. And two, once it did, like trying to, you know, dismiss it and suggest that this wasn't a systemic issue and that this is actually like a very isolated event. Yeah. And, and I will say as well, the, 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 like the seductive ideology of behavioral economics, like you're not alone in that, right? Because like the irony here is that you, you are so correct when you say that, you know, behavioral economics has these models of of humans um that are so abstracted and also so hollowed right like it, mm -hmm. it, it has this very like skinnerian in a in a bf skinner sense um view of people is just a bundle of behaviors right like they don't really have any agency i mean like to their most extreme and people like dana really hold this view like people don't actually have agency at all right they are just like like a, a bunch of uh, behavioral uh, reactions and you know subconscious reactions to external stimuli like that's their view of people it's an extremely anti-human dehumanized model um, which the irony here is that the whole idea of behavioral economics was that it was supposed to be a corrective for the homo economicus model, mm -hmm. which saw people as these like robotic utility maximizers, right? Mm -hmm. And behavioral economics was like, 
obviously that's wrong. People are not robotic utility utility maximizers. Um, you know, we have to bring in insights from psychology to really understand people and have a better economic model. But then the model they create is this extremely dehumanized model of people as just uh, uh, you know bundles of behaviors uh, reacting to external stimuli and. But the, the real purpose of behavioral economics was also always to be the pointy end of the stick for economic theories, like at, a inter, at this interventionist level, right? It was the promise of power, right? That if you had all this knowledge about behavioral economics and uh, incentives and interventions and cognitive biases and, and all of this, then you could manipulate people, uh, in really precise ways. You could have power over people in a really direct way. Like this was always the promise. It was a weaponization of economic models. Um, and so it makes perfect sense then that like, you know, CEOs and corporations love this shit, right? Because on one hand, it's hyper-individualistic. So it, it empties out any like political or structural critique. And on the other hand, it promises to give you the power of, uh, of, of mind control, of, of, if not mind control, then behavioral control, right? If you can't change what people believe, then you can at least be the puppeteer changing their behavior. Um, and, and it's really, I, I think it, it, it's it, like this, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's better to just hear it from the words, like from the mouth of someone like Dan Aureli, right? And he, you know, he's a main character of this of this article. You know, I've mentioned Dan Aureli is an extremely famous, uh, you know, behavioral economist, public intellectual fixture on the talk circuit, right? Like, you know, the article talks about how so he's a professor at Duke University um, in Durham, North Carolina, and. Uh, you know, he leads up a center there that's funded um, and, and that was that was founded with funding by BlackRock and MetLife. Right. So our two fucking enemies, right, the world's largest asset manager and one of the world's largest life insurers, <laughs> you know, uh, like it really tells you, like the, the funny money uh, is is real funny when it comes to, to people like Dana, really. Right. So, you know, and the the article talks about how like you know he's famously even though he has a wife and two young children he's only you know in town you know uh like you know five days out of the month because he's on the constant circuit of going around the world giving you know highly paid corporate speaking gigs and keynotes and uh consultancy to governments and corporations and all of this right so he's a he's a man on the move um what uh the uh he's a, he's israeli as well inherits the israeli newspaper and this is a, a funny aspect from the article you know inherits the israeli newspaper called dan Aureli, the world's busiest israeli because uh, he's just all over the place, constantly, you know, it's popping up everywhere. Documentaries on TV, on radio, and the on keynote stages, et cetera, et cetera. But to talk about behavioral economics as this, like, this promise of power, this quote from Aureli in the piece is really um, uh, telling. 
So it, it goes on. His knowledge of human behavior could be burdensome. Quote, it makes daily interactions a little difficult, Aureli said. Quote, I know all kinds of methods to convince people to do things I want them to do. Just imagine that you could separate the people who are your real friends from the people who want something from you. And now ask yourself if you really want to know this about them. I mean, this idea, right? That like, uh-huh. Ed, I, I, have a, I have a special set of skills. I can convince people to do anything that I want. And, and it's extremely burdensome for me right. to have <laughs> first powerful knowledge of human behavior. I'm a, I'm a puppeteer of everyone around me. And, and, you know, and, I, and, and, and please play the world's smallest violin for me. I mean, on one hand, uh, this is really representative of the, like, the, uh, at times borderline like sociopathic uh comments and be and and behaviors that are really uh says and 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 presents um on the other hand it, it really shows this like massive delusion of grandeur and power that is at the that is at the heart of uh of this discipline and what it offers people you know it's also kind of fascinating too with um with with especially with these two figures with um Ariely and Gino, right? You know, where like you said, you know, oh I'm burdened by all this knowledge. But also like, you know, shout out to them for finding a real friendship uh where they collaborated on lying together, right? <laughs> I mean, like the like uh one one thing I think, you know, fun to you know, to think through here, especially with the with the dishonesty, right? Is like, okay, well like what are some of the things that they are working on or that they've been trying to work on, right? And they've been trying to work on insights into um, how original original uh, thinkers, right? They're coming up with lies to justify their things. They're trying to flesh out a theory that just so happens to also like rationalize why it is that they also end up you know, being involved in data fraud, right? Um, and, and Gino, you know, Francesca Gino, you know, goes on kind of, you know, talking this section by um, Ari- we should oh. give some background about who she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Francesca Gino is um frequent collaborator of Ar- of Arelis, right? And so you know she's in you know as um Gideon writes, I'll quote him here. Uh, Gino is in her mid forties with dark curly hair and a frazzled aspect. She grew up in Italy, where she pursued a doctorate in economics and management. Members of her cohort remembered her dedication, industry, and commitment. She first came to Harvard Business School as a visiting fellow, and once she completed her PhD in 2004, she stayed on as a postdoc. She later said that she went to Harvard for a nine-month stint and never left. The story lies a few detours. By the end of her postdoc in 2006, she had yet to publish an academic paper, and Harvard did not extend an offer. One of her mentors at Harvard, a professor named Max Bazerman, helped make introductions. She eventually landed a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon. A senior colleague who knew her at the time told me that entire experience could plausibly have left her with a keen sense of the fragility and precariousness of academic careers. At last, she seemed to find her footing, and it soon looked as though she would get almost any study to produce results. She secured a job at UNC where she entered a phase of elevated productivity. According to her CV, she published seven journal papers in 2009. In 2011, an astonishing 11. 
And you know, so you know, listen, I'm you know, I'm a lazy piece of shit too. I get it. Sometimes you just don't want to work, but it is. Uh, you can see you can see the shape of things coming to, uh, together, right? Colleagues looking back and saying, "Well, you know, I guess she probably realized it really was publish or die, right?" And then <laughs> in going from you know zero papers to to seven, and then eventually eleven in a year, right? Are uh, making studies, you know, eventually produce results always. Goes on to say, Ariel and Gino frequently collaborated on dishonesty. And this is the paper I was just kind of, you know, alluding to. In the paper, The Dark Side of Creativity, they showed that original thinkers who can dream up convincing justifications tend to lie more easily. For the counterfeit itself, she and Ariely had a group of women wear what they were told were fake Chloe sunglasses. The designer accessories in an amusing control were actually real and then take a test. They found that participants who believed they were wearing counterfeit sunglasses cheated more than twice as much as the control group. In Sidetracked, Gino's first pop science book, she seems to note that such people were not necessarily corrupt. Quote, being human makes all of us vulnerable to subtle influences, end quote. In 2010, she returned to Harvard Business School, where she was awarded an endowed professorship and later became the editor of a leading journal. She dispensed page-a-day calendar advice on LinkedIn. Life is an unpredictable journey. The challenge isn't just setting our path, but staying on it amidst chaos. She was a research consultant for Disney, and a speaker's bureau quoted clients between fifty and $100,000 to book her on her uh, gigs. In 2020, she was the fifth highest paid employee at Harvard, earning about a million dollars a year, slightly less than the university's president. You know, so... So far, for some reason, this raised no alarm bells, right? She just, just, you know, getting her bag. She's just speaking all the time, you know, and I get it. I get it because, you know, in academia, the superstars do have ridiculous amounts of money coming their way, right? All the speaking gigs, the consulting work, uh, coming up as expert witnesses, you know, uh, it, not, it, not all of academia. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll let academia. you know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A very narrow sliver. But Harvard Business School is essentially a consultancy. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, that's how you have to understand. Like, if you're a professor at Harvard Business School, uh, then you are working at, yes, you're at an academic department or faculty, but in in actuality, what you're doing is you're working at one of the uh, world's top consulting firms, Harvard Business School, right? Like, that, like, that's what these people do, right? You get a job there, you get an endowed professorship at Harvard Business School, and there are a ton of them because businesses love to endow the school with money and 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 so on. Um, but you get a professorship there, and then you're like, you're expected to uh, be a high paid consultancy for for whatever corporation comes your way, right? Like it's part of your job description. Um, but yeah, like it, it's it's. Uh, I, I just wanted to say, like, it's 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 extremely anomalous for academia, like as a whole. But this is the way business schools work, and especially Harvard Business School. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, there are special boys. You know, they're discovering the frontier of knowledge, and that's why they deserve the big bucks at the end of the day. Um, and there's just no, you know, that's just that's just how the cookie crumbles. Um, <laughs> You know, and at this point, you know, you know, it, it becomes clear, you know, people are kind of amazed by her 
productivity. A business school professor says um, she's not just brilliant and successful and wealthy. She has been a kind, fun person to know. She was well-liked even by the researchers who were skeptical of her work. But she drew less admiring notice, too, also from people who could not believe her productivity. As one management scholar told me, you just cannot trust someone who is publishing 10 papers a year in top journals. Other co-authors, as collateral beneficiaries, weren't sure what to think. One former graduate student thought she had caught Gino plagiarizing portions of a literature review, but tried to convince herself it was an honest error. Later, in a study for a different paper, quote, Gino was like, I had no, I had an idea for an additional experiment that would tie everything together, and I already collected the data and wrote it up. Here are the results. The former graduate student added, quote, my advisor was like, did you design the study together? No. Did you know it was going to happen? No. Has she sent you the data? No. Something is off here, right? And it turns out that it eventually, you know, it, slowly we start to see it unfurl, right? There's a symposium for the Academy of Management on Behavioral Ethics where Ariely comes on in as a contributor. Getting points out that Gino and Bezerman, they, you know, they've been working on moral identity. Uh, and, that, you know, based off the findings with the car insurance company that had been unpublished, but talks he had done based on it that had been making the round, right? And so the field study seemed like the perfect companion piece for joint publication. And so they were talking about trying to become co-authors, write the paper for a top journal. Gino gets brought in on this, right? Or Gino, Ariely, and Baserman tried to work together on this. They published the paper in 2012. It becomes a, an event. Quote, signing the honesty pledge at the beginning, Ariely found reduced cheating by about 10%. The Obama administration included the paper's findings in an annual White House report. Government bodies in the UK, Canada, and Guatemala initiated studies to determine whether they should revise their tax forms and estimated that this might recoup billions of dollars a year. Kahneman told me he saw no reason to disbelieve the results, which were clearly compatible with the orientation of the field. Quote, but many things that might work don't, he told me. It's not necessarily, and it's not necessarily clear a priori. Right? And so... Behavioral economics, behavioral science, you know, the, the, the children and grandchildren of uh, Skinner that we weren't able to kill, they are having their moment, right? They are ascendant. And then, <laughs> and then, and then we start to, and then we start to see some things happen, right? There's a funny example here where Cornell psychologist Daryl Bem publishes a journal article that seems to prove the existence of clairvoyance. His study participants, Gideon writes, were able to predict with reasonable accuracy which curtain on a computer screen hid an erotic image. The idea seemed parodic, but Bem was serious and had arrived at his results using methodologies entirely in line with the field standard practices. This was troubling. The same year, three young behavioral science professors, Joe Simmons, Leif Nielsen, and Yuri Simonson, published an actual parody in a paper called False Positive Psychology, they proved that listening to the Beatles song when I'm 64 rendered study participants literally a year and a half younger. <laughs> Quote, it was hard to think of something that was so crazy that no one would believe it because compared to what was actually being published in our journals, nothing was that crazy, Nelson, who teaches at UC Berkeley, said. Researchers could measure dozens of variables and perform reams of analyses and publish only the correlations that happen to appear significant. If you tortured the data long enough, as one grim joke went, it would confess to anything. They called such techniques p-hacking. 
As they later put it, everyone knew it was wrong, but they thought it was the wrong it was wrong the way it's wrong to jaywalk. In fact, they wrote, it was wrong the way it's wrong to rob a bank. Earlier you said that behavioral economics is like astrology for capitalists. And I, I want to <laughs> say that um, that's I have a lot of friends that are uh, I have some friends that are like seriously into astro- uh, astrology and the, astrology and for really, socialists. OK, that's a really unfair comparison. because <laughs> They have like so uh, rigorous uh, theories and methodologies for yeah. <laughs> for for, yeah. for for what they do. Um, like they have these really complex and consistent theories, you know, these whole tables and so on. And um, it's really unfair to describe the uh, you know behavioral economics as astrology because it doesn't it it, it discounts um, the amount of work that the astrologers put in compared to <laughs> the amount of work that the behavioral economists put into what they produce. Uh, I mean, this shit is just insane. Uh, one of the things that's great about this article, because it's something that's great about the field of behavioral economics, is that um, uh, you don't have to do a lot of work to show how absolutely silly uh, it is. Like, all you have to do is describe stuff that people do, right? Like, it, it's mm-hmm. it's the best critique when you don't have to bend over backwards yourself, but merely all you need to do is report on what people are doing or what they are claiming or what they are publishing um, and just do it with a straight face. And, and it is so self-evidently ridiculous and silly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, again, it betrays this, this wild view of people that such th- that, that we are not only just reactions to like purely behavioral reactions to external stimuli, but like a bu- there's like a butterfly effect, right? Where like, like a small external change can cause these massive ripple, rippling behavioral effects, right? It's absurd on its face. Um, before we get into more around the uh, data collada and the actual like investigations and allegations of fraud, I do want to mention as well, like a couple more of these studies that Dana really um, and, and Gino have both conducted to really give a sense of like, what does it like? What do you have to do to be considered um, among the most famous behavioral economists? For example, there's this like famous uh, Ten Commandments study um, that he happened, right? And a lot of this is based around again, like uh, dishonesty and cheating. Um, a real kind of like, uh, and and the piece, the the New Yorker piece gets into this later. But there's a real kind of like mirror effect here, where it's like, you know. People who are themselves um, uh, allegedly, because some of this is going through court cases, but allegedly uh, been conducting rampant fraud for decades. Um, and then, you know, the, the irony of them doing it while studying fraud and dishonesty may not be such a, a, a weird coincidence, but is may actually be a lot more kind of psychology happening here um, than, than, than we might think. But the um, New Yorker piece goes on, in experiments really found that most people cheat when given the opportunity, but just a little. A really does not shy from cutesiness, called this the fudge factor. In turn, he proposed people might just need to be reminded that they aspire to be decent. In one of his most famous experiments, he asked students to score their own math test. Half the students had first been asked to list the Ten Commandments. Although most could not re- could, although most could recall only a few, I really found that in this group, nobody cheated. The insight was simple, the intervention subtle, and the consequences enormous. 
right? So it's that kind of stuff, right? Where it's like you tell people they're wearing counterfeit sunglasses and they 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 cheat more than twice as much as a control group. You ask people to list the Ten Commandments before taking a test and nobody cheats, right? Like <laughs> it's absolutely fucking stupid on their mm-hmm. face stupid things um that were that were taken at face value uh and treated as like famous you know talked about in documentaries and giving these people huge profiles you know a really is a constant mainstay in documentaries about elizabeth holmes enron and everything in between anywhere where you need somebody to talk about dishonesty or fraud he's happy to be there right to talk about it and 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 talk about his his studies that he's done um you know, of course, these things don't hold water when you actually investigate them even just a little bit, right? The Ten Commandments study is really telling here. Uh, a quote again, in 2018, two researchers in the Netherlands coordinated an extensive international effort to replicate, replicate Aurelius' Ten Commandments study, enlisting 25 labs. Their results found that asking participants to recall the Ten Commandments led, if anything, to a slight increase in dishonesty. Uh, It really holds that this replication was imperfect. Uh, You know, a replication across 25 labs is imperfect compared to Mm. his one perfect study. Uh, The researchers also encountered a medley of inconsistencies in the way that Aureli had described the study over the years. It was an embellishment to claim, even given the data he initially published, that the intervention had eliminated cheating entirely. Aureli maintained that the study had been conducted at UCLA by a professor named Amy Drollett-Rossi. When I spoke to Rossi, she told me that she had never participated in the study. Quote, I thought, well, first, what a joke. I don't believe that study, and I certainly didn't run it. UCLA issued a statement saying that the study had not taken place there. Last year, Aureli, having learned that an Israeli television program was investigating the case, wrote to Rossi, quote, Do you remember who was the research assistant that was running the data collection sessions in 2004 and 2005? Rossi replied, quote, There was none. That's the point. Aureli says that the study took place, and it's possible that it did, in some form. He told me he now remembers that the surveys were collected at UCLA, but processed by an assistant at MIT, which might explain the mix-up. He could not provide the assistant's identity. And this goes on and on and on, right? Where it's like this systemic pattern of misremembering of embellishing the truth of little white lies this is something that uh the new yorker article talks about fairly extensively that a really himself you know people who work closely with a really you know former students and postdocs and colleagues um talk about how you know as one former senior researcher said quote how do you swim through that murky area of where is he lying? Where is he stretching the truth? What is he forgetting or mis- misremembering? Because he does all three of those things very consistently. So when it really matters, like with the auto insurance paper, which of these things, uh, three things is it, right? So this is someone who has a really loose relationship to 
the truth, right? Um, one might even say he has a, a very dishonest relationship <laughs> to the truth, perhaps a fraudulent relationship to the truth, right? Some people might be tempted to call him a liar, even, you know. And, and, and maybe he would uh, uh, explain it away by saying, well, you know, he too is human. He might have all this knowledge about human behavior, but, you know, he too is just a, 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 a plastic bag, a leaf in the wind, you know, American beauty style. He's just, he's just a beautiful plastic bag getting blown and buffeted any which way by the winds. It's not his fault if he embellishes the truth a little bit, if he does a little white lie here and there, if he if he conveniently misremembers the details of things that happened last week, last month, last year. Uh, you know, hey, that's just part of being human. We're all irrational. The tower that's falling down around him, like this towering reputation he has that's now falling down around him. The the irony here as well, right? Like, you know, irrationality is 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 one of his kind of business card concepts that he talks about constantly to the extent that um uh i think it was nbc just premiered um last month a new primetime uh procedural cop drama called the irrational uh which is based around um jesse l martin is starring as a behavioral scientist directly inspired by Arelli, uh, who helps solve crimes <laughs> quote understanding human nature can be a superpower which is why the fbi ends up calling me martin's character says a trade publication article about the show accidentally described Aureli's first book as a work of fiction, which inspired Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist, to joke on Twitter, quote, I have known for years that Dana Aureli made stuff up, but now it turns out that it is okay because his book was a novel. I mean, just the fact that NBC has uh, premiered a new primetime show starring uh, a law and order veteran um, that's a direct uh, uh, inspiration from Aureli at the exact same time when all of these massive allegations of fraud are really starting to bubble over. Just it's, it's beautiful. The timing is just so beautiful. It is, you know, I think, um, you know, I was, you know, when, when I, when I had, um, been kind of rereading also or reading some stuff in preparation of this, right. I had come across this blog that also kind of had like a nice so reflecting on how lovely all of this was and how this, you know, more or less feels cyclical. Right. And they, and you know, of course, like they go over a good amount of the terrain that this article eventually, you know, fleshes out, focusing on Gino, focusing on Ariely, focusing on, you know, uh, data Colada and the way in which they've been able to unveil some things as well as the retractions that have been, um, at that point, what was it? Uh, July 4th, there had been like maybe, nearly 60 retractions of papers. Uh, they, they point to this interesting example um, from an earlier generation of behavioral economists that were doing fraud. An earlier group, I shouldn't even say generation because this hasn't even been that long. Diedrich Staple, right? He's a, he's a famed and shamed researcher in behavioral psychology. And he said, I was alone in my tastefully furnished office at university. I opened the file with the data that I had entered and changed an unexpected two into a four. Then, 
A little further along, I changed a three into a five. When the results are just not quite what you'd so badly hoped for, when you know that the hope is based on a thorough analysis of the literature, then surely you're entitled to adjust the results a little. I looked at the array of data and I made a few mouse clicks to tell the computer to run these statistical analyses. When I saw the results, the world became logical again, right? And so here, you know, you have Diedrich Staple kind of saying, look, I wasn't doing data fraud. I was aligning the world with my priors and my priors are informed by logical analysis of the literature review. And so I'm only really tampering with the data, not, um, not fabricating it. The preferred term is massaging the data. Yeah, right, just right. Just massaging it. Sometimes I torture it a little bit. You know, sometimes we waterboard the data. Sometimes, you know, we sleep deprived the data. We need to get the answers that we want, you know? And hey, have you ever had one of those like Swedish deep tissue massages? Yeah. Like sometimes they feel like torture, right. but at the end you feel better. You, you got know? a hot rock on your skin, <laughs> you know? You ever been in one of those, um, those saunas where you it's so hot that you can bake an egg inside and you get in there and they and they give you now i'm describing a very my specific experience with it but they where they wrap you up with multiple towels and you sit there (laughs) covered and you and you and you and when you breathe in it hurts but not really because you can feel the heat in your lungs and you can only spend like maybe a few seconds there you have been in that that's Sometimes you got to do that to the data, you know, to get the thing that you want. It feels it feels horrible, but it's actually it's for your, right. it's for all of our good. Now this blog post kind of talks about how a lot of researchers were like, you know, quote, amazingly, while a fresh wave of researchers in Staples' field of priming theory were tut-tutting Staples' exposed misconduct, some of them were busy manipulating their own data, and that's a fun development to learn that uh, Gino. Is, was one of the people who was coming down hard on this on the perceived frauds um, or or on of coming down hard on fraud in the field, right? And the blog post kind of goes later on to be like, okay, well, like you know, we have Gino, we have Ariely, we have a lot of like you know people who are willing to violate norms of good science and then write books on the value of their vi- violations. We have people who are not really getting punished or who believe or for a long time don't get punished. You know what is to be done about it, and they and they were. And I'm going to quote this section that they kind of sign off the the essay with. Uh, you may recall that after the Staple Fair in 2011, psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who uh, Kahneman, who is quoted in this um, New Yorker piece, warned. <laughs> yeah, right. Also <laughs> yes. a Nobel Prize um, winning warned that he saw economist. quote quote saw a train wreck looming for social psychology. Trainwreck is the title of Staple's book reflecting on his fraud. <laughs> you can find it online. Search Staple on his blog. Conaman uh, uh, called for a daisy chain of replication to restore credibility to hard-hit areas such as priming studies. And as we've been talking about, a lot of these studies are studies about priming. What I do to you before you come into this controlled environment is going to affect how you respond to data. If I bring up 
times uh, where you networked for professional gain? Are you going to feel dirty and slimy if I give you fake or real sunglasses? Are you going to cheat if I talk about the commandment or God? You know, if I make you sign a disclosure, an honesty pledge at the beginning of some form, so on and so forth. One of the most famous ones of these as well that got passed around because it was like a big <laughs> meme is the, oh, yes. the idea that you do a power pose. <laughs> so you like put your hands on your hip um, before like a job interview right. and it's meant to make you feel like a superhero. Uh, and so it primes you to be powerful uh, in a, in, in, and, and that, that is one of the uh, yeah. many studies that have since been uh, retracted. But nonetheless have seeped into the public um, imagination. They are wrong. I remember that being repeated around as real advice as late as recently as 2017, 2018, when that study was rebuked years before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, same. And, 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 you know, as, as uh, Kahneman says here, and, um, He's quoted in a 2012 article, right or wrong, your field is now the poster child for doubts about the integrity of psychological research, end quote. So in response, initiatives such as the Open Science Framework, OSF, emerged providing a repository for data and promoting transparency. I don't know if Gino and her colleagues purported to follow such OSF recommendations as pre-registration. I doubt it. However, the practice of making data available in different degrees of detail proved vital to the authors of Data Collada, uncovering signs of data manipulation. And, you know, it goes on to write that, you know, data collada researchers were able to spot manipulation by following up on such slips up such as changes in font, indications of swapping out Excel columns, peculiar responses by a set of participants who described their academic year as Harvard rather than, say, junior, senior, as with other entries. In one case, they observed a divergence between participants in formal language description of their responses to an intervention and the numerical scores assigned by the researchers. While these words were ignored by Gino and her co-authors, they forgot to erase them. This was a tip-off that these data were questionable, and sure enough, the fraudbusters found that the claimed effect disappeared as if the self-described response was used. This also, I, you know, I bring in this you know, thing because it's also interesting to consider that, one, the fraud seems to have been relatively easy to capture. And in fact, when you read Data Collada's research, and I think part of the thing that makes it such a searing indictment is how in-depth and how expansive the fraud is, but also how it seemed no one ca- like even took a second look. Like even a cursory attempt to check in on whether or not this data was real or not, because if they had had, they might have noticed some of these things. Right. And also just more standardly, uh, the proposals for reforms that would just improve data collection methods and ability to replicate them to create this daisy chain, I think are also like really important recommendations that come through uh, the pipeline, because, you know, even if we figure out, you know, purge these frauds. One way to pair back against the growing fraud and the and the incentives to lie about data and the fields that are founded on fraudulent data and the damage that these fields do because this stuff gets accepted as received wisdom um, are to put in place you know some of these as first steps as very first steps in helping prevent uh, people from uh, 
massaging the data. The the point you made there around like, so Data Collada, right? These three social scientists that run this blog that has become very well known for their, you know, uncovering of data manipulation, if not outright fraud in, you know, the, in these social science studies, specifically like behavioral economics and social psychology, which seems to be particularly, uh, uh, has a particular proclivity for this. Um, you, you, made, you made a point that's exactly right, which is that like, it's not as if they are having to do like uh, insane in-depth forensic analysis because the fraud or the manipulation, the massaging of the data is often done so lazily. It's so lazy. Uh, you know, it, it is the, the, the smoking guns are just like there right for you to see. The thing that Data Collada does that's highly unusual is they actually look at data, um, which is, you know, like, like when you publish a study that is meant to be one of these social psychology or behavioral economics experiments, right? Like no one ever actually looks at the data. They just look at the write-up. They probably just read the abstract, right? They read the abstract. They see um, whatever effect is supposedly found. And then they say, you know, okay, like that's, that's, that's true. Uh, and I will, you know, put that into my mind as a, as a true fact about human behavior and, and go on. Right. No one ever actually looks at the data, um, that is meant to be published alongside these studies or at least available upon request, um, for good, according to the tenets of, rigorous open science, not to mention the tenets of uh, of human ethics uh, research, you know, and that's something else here. I mean, we'll get into it, but a lot of this, uh, a lot of these quote unquote experiments that happen are so fucking unethical at like a human research point of view. Um, it really, really grinds my gears on that level, not to mention just the, uh, the academic and intellectual dishonesty and plagiarism and fraud. Um, but so that's like that's the innovation of data collada here is to actually look at the data um, of these studies and see the clear evidence for manipulation uh, and fraud all over them, right? But it's there there what we find what we see here is that one reason why this stuff is done so ineptly and so lazily uh, is because it's it's in everyone's interest to not to to look the other way right because like hey we're all doing it to some extent right and so you don't want to you don't want to tattletale on each other it's it is truly a thin blue line for uh, for for academia um you know it, it is like that that level of uh of of of, of, of like solidarity amongst like just the most unethical practices and also that level of collective disdain and vengeance against anybody who might point it out. There's a paragraph in, in the New Yorker piece that I think really points out like how extreme this is. And this is, you know, there, there's, there's multiple kind of things throughout the, um, uh, the article, but this really distill, distills this point. So talking about, you know, Daniel Kahneman, you know, social psychologist, you know, got the uh, Nobel Prize in, you know, behavioral economics for all of his, you know, he's very famous, you know, author of Thinking Fast and Slow, right? But, 
Anyways, Kahneman, you know, the quote, Kahneman graciously conceded that he had been wrong to endorse some of this research and told me of Data Collada, quote, they're heroes of mine, but not everyone was supportive. Data Collada's harshest critics saw the young men as jealous upstarts who didn't understand the soft artistry of the social sciences. Norbert Schwartz, an eminent, uh, an eminence grisset of psychology, interrupted a presentation about questionable research practices at a conference and later called the burgeoning reform movement a witch hunt. A former president of the Association for Psychological Sciences in a leaked editorial referred to such efforts as data colladas as quote unquote methodological terrorism. When Data Collada posted about Amy Cuddy, who, stu- who published the PowerPost study, it was taken as evidence of borderline misogyny. The Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert referred to, quote, the repu- replication police as, quote, shameless little bullies. Others compared Data Collada to the Stasi. Simonson found this analogy hurtful and offensive. Quote, we're like data journalists, he said. All we can do is inform people with power. The only power you have is being right. So, I mean, this is like truly some thin blue line shit for behavioral economics and social psychology, right? Like, like calling people, how dare the, you know, the replication police, the Stasi, methodological terrorism, like all these people are doing is looking at the data published alongside these studies claiming these insane and ridiculous uh, behavioral effects and showing clear and evident uh, uh, clear and present evidence of uh, of manipulation massaging fraud but like that 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 cannot stand amongst these people and it has a it has a real uh it, it smacks a lot of um <laughs> doth protest too much you know uh, a little bit of uh hey i wasn't talking about you but since you've spoken up so defensively and so loudly what you got to hide what are you doing that maybe this uh this speaks to you in mm-hmm. such a, a personal uh, way could it possibly be that you you're doing something that i just talked about is that the case um I do love I do love how quickly these people tell on themselves right i mean i think i think on on some level I admire it. I admire being, you know, being a grifter, um, being a liar, being a thief, but never really doing the basic work to protect yourself from, um, you know, everything falling down on top of you. Um, And then starting to, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, is it, is it a case that, these people really started to believe that they were the superstar researchers or did they just like at every point be like, well, I got to cheat. You know, I just got to cheat. Like, I don't know. You know, maybe we should do a behavioral economic study of that. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, because I, because I think that's, that's, you know, when I see such rampant fraud, I'm, I am a fan. I'm a fan of grifting when it's done right. Right. Which is where you don't get a big head about it. You steal from people who are higher up than you in the socioeconomic ladder, um, and you do it very big. You do it very big to the point where uh, they really they try really hard to make an example of you, and you get away. 
or they get your ass, but you go out like, you know, in a great big boom. Right. And here it's just kind of like a quiet little whimper. Um, it kind of feels like with all of them being like, well, no, 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 I, I'm at, I, no, 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 no. You guys don't understand. You don't understand. Like uh, you, it's, it's not cheating. If I change every number in my columns to a different number. All right. I'm just, it's, it's only one variable that I'm modifying uh, because uh, th- this is the, this is the conclusion that we would have come to anyway. Right. The fact that I did it in that time means I did the study wrong. And, and so I should be given the chance to do the study right by fabricating some of the data. People fudging things or cheating. I mean, that's always going to be an inherent part of being a human being. Yeah. We're this dog eat dog mentality we all have. We're all taught from an early age has put us in a position where we're willing to do anything we can to get ahead. And that includes, you know, cheating at sports or fudging data. Well, I, I think that I think it takes an ideology to believe that though, right? Like, I mean, this is also an outset of the fact that these people are economists, right? Like they are beat over the head, uh, their entire education that people are inherently selfish. Uh, they are inherently individualistic. They are inherently competitive. Uh, you know, they will, you know, they are beat over the head that, uh, you know, capitalism and all of its uh, antisocial logics is a natural force and uh, an endless, uh, uh, you know, force, an omnipresent force, right? And, and so on. And so I think you're like, you know, I think that they use that as a way to say, well, everybody's doing it. And so I, why, like, this is what it takes to get ahead. I mean, like, you know, this is the fast and loose relationship to the truth that Dana really has because it's made him so, uh, immensely famous, right? This is the, uh, the fast and loose, um, uh, uh, relationship to fraud that people like Francesco Gino have because, you know, they weren't getting ahead until suddenly they were getting ahead and getting ahead in a major way when you, uh, you know, when a switch flips in you and you publish seven papers in a year and then 11 papers in the next year for economic, I mean, for any academic, that's an insane amount of productivity for economics. That is really wild. It's really common for economics disciplines to publish like one um, A star paper a year, like a top turn, like a top tier journal paper, if they're good. Right. Like, and so, you know, but when a switch flips and then you start getting all the accolades and the positions and the respect and the wealth and, and the, the reputation, it's hard, it's, it's hard to turn it off. And, and then you just tell yourself, this is just, Hey, this is human nature. I'm just I'm just a slave to human nature like anybody else. Right. And it's like, no, that's a human nature that you have created in your theories and are then justifying, uh, with, with, with your fraudulent work. Right. Like, um, but, and it does, you build it up and build it up and build it up. And then maybe one day it all comes tumbling down around you and then you are backed in a corner and you have nothing to do but to to lash out like a wild animal. But maybe, maybe you can last a whole career, <laughs> a whole lifetime doing this. Nobody finds out or everybody looks the other way. Yeah. There's no consequences, right? I, f- I, forget who, I forget who said it, but there's an old saying that goes, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. I mean, yeah, she let they. This is literally her life model. I mean, I can't, I, I just can't get over the part of the essay where, you know, there's the Reddit comment that's like, uh, that the guy who participates in a survey of hers, um, 
where she wants people to read her book and tell her what they think and then pay them with Amazon gift cards. And the guy goes, good pay shit book. Sorry to see her go. You know, that's... <laughs> that is psycho to like pay and, um, people to read and, and review the, your the book. Titles, the titles <laughs> like, of I mean, like I know we've we we have spent the episode kind of going through the titles of a lot of her work and how much of it feels like it's speaking to herself. But it it just it boggles me as you've been talking about. It, it just boggles me. If you write a book called Rebel Talent, why it pays to break the rules at work and life? Like, come on, man. Come on, man. If you write a paper called Evil Genius, how dishonesty can lead to greater creativity. Come on, man. You know, like, what are we doing here? It's oh like a murder. What kind of Hannibal Lecter bullshit is this? You know, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like that movie, The Snowman, or whatever. I gave you all the clues, Mr. Oh, Policeman. Write <laughs> in my own confession note and publishing it again and again and again. It's being like, somebody stop me. <laughs> if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying quote is actually something that's really popular in the social engineering crowds. So I don't know if that has uh, any type of correlation. They're right, right? I mean, like, if you're trying to get into a restricted area, if you're trying to get into, um, if you're trying to, like, sw- sim swap somebody, if you're trying to, like, lift somebody's, you know, passwords from a data dump, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, you know, you really aren't. But my fucking God, come on. Why did everything that she wrote sound like a plea for help from, like, her <laughs> conscience? But here's the thing, too. They ain't even trying that hard at their cheating. That's like the, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's also the other thing. There's a piece here where he said, where uh, the, the, the essay goes on. Um, the more unsettling charge though, was that Gino had repeatedly refused to share the raw data from, uh, from any of her experiments. Once after a, the stu- after a student of hers didn't hand over an analysis during a long weekend, Gino ran the study herself and produced much stronger results. Huh? <laughs> you just wrote, you just wrote back after a long weekend and said, "Sorry, I was waiting on that analysis and got really impatient." You know, I'm such an industrious and productive person, so so I ran the study myself during the long weekend and wrote it up. And oh, by the way, my now my study produced much stronger results. So these are the ones we're going to publish. Bro, you ain't even trying. <laughs> Shout out to Harvard to doing for doing a three month investigation after multiple complaints to faculty review board about Gino and saying, well, nobody really disproved the claims of fraud. Uh, we don't need to do anything here. You know, shout out to them for protecting their shooters, you know, for uh, for really just saying it's okay as long as you don't get caught by people who aren't lab assistants, undergrads, postdocs, you know, the little the little guys, the shit pushers. Then there's a there's a great quote here uh, <laughs> that reminds me of remember last week Sam Bankman Fried's mom um, said that uh, <laughs> my son is incapable of telling an untruth. I never even yeah. asked him if he did it because I know in my heart that he's incapable of of doing fraud. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a great quote <laughs> here that along the same exact lines. Um, 
Gino has maintained that she never falsified or fabricated data. In a statement, her lawyer said, Harvard's complete and utter disregard for evidence, due process, confidentiality, and gender inequity should frighten all academic researchers. And Data Collada's vicious takedown is baseless. She declined to comment on other matters on the record. Lawrence Lessig, a law professor at Harvard, told me he is certain that Gino is innocent. Quote, I'm convinced about her because I know her. That's the strongest reason why I can't believe this has happened. Yeah. And, yeah, and it goes on. This spring, Harvard finalized a 1,200-page report that found Gino culpable. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a real, like, my son is incapable of telling an untruth, except it's a, uh, a renowned uh, law professor, you know, intellectual property scholar. You know, Lawrence Lessig is the guy who wrote Code is Law, right? He was supposed to, like, you know, uh, he he's he was supposed to save the internet from itself, and and here he, he is was also being- a former, if I remember correctly, he was like the director of uh, their Center for Ethics, also. Yeah, which yeah. is a which is a funny little. Uh- <laughs> and here he is being like. Uh, G- Francesca Gino could never have done this. Why? Because I know her. I'm friend. I'm friends I with her, her. Yeah. and that's <laughs> the strongest reason why I believe she could never do this. I'm friends with oh. the best people. Yeah. Also, it's funny because Lessig, Lessig has a connection also to Sam Bankman-Fried because he was dean of Stanford Law School, where he worked with, um, where he worked with the parents. Uh, I think he also gave a similar quote too, defending their honor. It's so easy to not embarrass yourself like this in public. Like, just just don't say anything. If you really believe that, what are you doing by coming to the defense of people who are obviously going to be found guilty of of massive fraud and here you are racking up a collection of 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 statements where you're on the record being like uh these people are not fraudsters why what's my evidence um my moral compass (laughs) oh god this is wild. This is so fucking. Uh, I mean, this whole story goes so much deeper. It's it's such a great condemnation. I mean, I really hope that like there's so much more here that we've not even touched on, that we've not even gotten into because we don't have the time. But like you know, it's a fucking long piece. But I highly recommend people read it because um, th- this is the most like damning and. In- indictment of this field that has been a long time coming um it and it's not come out of nowhere it's not the first one or the only one you got people like data colada have been doing the the real fucking grunt work for a long ass time and catching the flack for it as well um in fact gino is suing data colada right um, so she, you know, Gino filed a $25 million lawsuit, um, claiming that she had been defamed by Data Collada and wrongly terminated by Harvard. I mean, one, this is an extreme, it's such a vicious move. It really is like a wild animal who's caught in the corner and just starts lashing out, right? Like, so, you know, this $25 million lawsuit, um, that, you know, it will be dismissed, right? Like this lawsuit yeah. will be dismissed. But even then, um, the 
you know, piece goes on, even if the defam- defamation counts are dismissed soon, Gino's suit will cost Data Colada tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Um, but the research community has rallied behind the members of Data Colada. A group of colleagues set up a GoFundMe on their behalf, which raised almost $200,000 in 24 hours, right? And then, like, you know, a, a Realty's lab lost its two biggest biggest funders uh morale is low you know so like these these people their empire is falling apart and some of them like are really are taking it in stride while also you know uh throwing other people under the bus as we as we mentioned before while people like gino are um, absolutely not taking it in stride and are lashing out um viciously against anybody and everybody who uh she sees as uh responsible for this you know notably not herself though right um this is not she she's not responsible but it i mean like so this is all a lot of this legally is still ongoing but like the evidence for the fraud uh, is just mounting and mounting and i mean it would be a real shame if the takeaway from this like you know academically or publicly is that uh dana really and francesca gino were just bad apples right instead of like the shiniest apples in the bunch you know um like high like it's extremely representative of of uh of all of this like that that would like that's that's the real thing Thank here you. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much here that we 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 can't get into that we haven't gotten into, but really abhorrent stuff intellectually. But maybe maybe we can leave out on on something that really rankled me at like an ethical level, where it's un it's it's unclear to me how something like this could happen, let alone like how somebody could do it, right? And this is this is some this is an experiment that Dana really did uh, ages ago, and it, it's part of his whole because part of his whole reputation is not just these dishonesty studies and cheating studies, but he he's really really quite good at doing stuff that like is edgy, right, and and catches attention because it's edgy. He he's he famously did um, a study. Uh, where he put survey questions to um, to research subjects who were actively masturbating, right? And quote, Aureli found that men in a state of excitement could imagine to be aroused by a 12-year-old girl, animals, and shoes. Another study looked into people's attitudes about dildos and other sex toys. He once proposed outfitting service workers with protuberant fake nipples to see how the devices would affect tips, right? So he's got a real like Reddit edgelord kind of uh, vein to him as well, which catches a lot of media attention, right? These things are really headline worthy and very uh, calculated in that respect to get headlines uh, and to build his reputation. But he also does things that are like truly ethically, morally abhorrent. Um, And so in 2005, Aureli ran an experiment at MIT in which electric shocks were administered to Craigslist volunteers who had been told that they were testing the efficacy of a painkiller. 
One of the participants was subjected to more than 40 shocks of increasing strength and broke down in tears. She claims that an assistant in a lab coat told her that she would forfeit payment if she backed out. The assistant doesn't recall saying this. The worst part was that the final de-hoaxing. In notes from the time, she wrote, quote, I was informed that there was no painkiller, that they were testing placebos, and that all the information I had been given was fabricated. If you sympathized with Wirili, this represented a return to the glory days of dashing mid-century social psychology. A less charitable interpretation was that the rules were in place for a good reason. I, the research participant goes on, I think he didn't think very highly of his subjects. And I was young, but I wasn't that gullible, the participant told me. She complained, and the university found that Aurelie's assistant lacked human subjects training, which an administrator called a very serious violation. And Aurelie was says he was suspended from data collection for a year. This, I mean, truly a morally abhorrent uh, experiment. Also, an extremely unnecessary one in every regard. Not least of which is that it's just a a replication of the of the Milgram experiment, which is seen as one of the most, uh, you know intellectually uh, unethical experiments in social psychology. And really is like, I can do that. I can recapture the flair of the, of the, of those days of social psychology where rules uh, didn't apply. I mean, it, it takes, I, again, I, in my opinion, real evidence throughout this piece of borderline sociopathic behavior um, in, uh, coming from, from, from these people. I mean, not least of which, I just don't, e- I honestly don't even know how something like that could happen. I sit on my university's human research ethics committee. I review ethics applications for, um, human subject experiments, uh, like this. Um, this would never fly. This would never pass in any way. Right. Um, and, and so, which also makes it seem like there's a real kind of cowboy mentality here uh, where the rules don't apply to him. He can do whatever he wants. Um, all of these things around procedures and protocols, ethics and, uh, and norms, that's for other people. That's not for him. He's on a search for the truth, right? Uh, and he can't be held down by things like uh, human subjects uh, ethics or human research ethics, right? I mean, that that was the one thing that amongst all the fraud uh, that we've been talking about, that experiment, I think, speaks the most about like the moral depravity um, of these people. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, exactly. I hope they uh, include some of that in the episodes of that NBC show that's loosely based on him. Maybe they'll have some horny episodes or some episodes where he's torturing college kids. Yeah, well, I mean, it, <laughs> it is an FBI procedural, so that's just all part of you know business as usual, right? Yeah, they're going to have a Brave Cave episode. Brave Cave. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it just... This is a, uh, it's a really, really <laughs> extremely damning uh, and indicting um, article. And um, I, I hope that this, uh, this empire crumbles. I don't just want the king to be beheaded. I want the entire empire to crumble, you know. And I, I got an amen! <laughs> yeah, so, 
I think that's a good place to leave this uh, to leave things off. But uh, you know, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, I've, you all can find us at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills for more additional episodes every single week. I mean, our last week uh, episode was just 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 unplanned, uh, nice coincidence, uh, an excellent uh, companion piece to this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we went on a real kind of a, a, a fraud series there. And so, um, but check that out. Check out the back catalog. Find us over at Patreon. And until next time, later. Adios. Adios. Yeah, 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 yeah.